Mayo Clinic Radio presents a conversation about cervical cancer screening with Dr. Kathy McLaughlin. The show hosts are Dr. Tom Shives and Tracy McRae. This podcast was recorded on January 6th, 2017. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancer of the cervix. Tracy, there's some actually some good news about this Fabulous. cancer. Yep. The number of women dying of cervical cancer has decreased over 60% since the introduction of the cancer screening test called the pap smear, which was invented by a Greek physician by the name of Papa Nikolaou. I said that because my wife is Greek. I know. Uh, you're yeah, very wise. Some points. But according to the CDC, there are still 12,000 new cases of cervical cancer and 4,000 deaths due to cervical cancer every year in the United States. Now, most of these are women who were either never screened or they weren't screened often enough or as often as they should, or they had an abnormal test and didn't have adequate follow-up. Wow. In an effort to raise awareness about how women can protect themselves from HPV, the human papillomavirus, and cervical cancer, January is Cervical Health Awareness Month. Here to discuss cervical cancer screening is Dr. Kathy McLaughlin. Dr. McLaughlin is a family medicine physician who focuses her research on improving rates of cervical cancer screening. Welcome to the program, Dr. McLaughlin. Thank you. Uh, nice to have you on the program. So uh, Tracy said, uh, and she talked uh, uh, as if there was a, a definite connection between HPV and cervical cancer. Explain that. Sure. This was a really exciting finding, basically, in the science world to recognize that the cause of cervical cancer, 99 plus percent of the time, is persistent infection with human papillomavirus or HPV. There what, are many, do you, what do you mean persistent infection? We'll use the term HPV if that's okay going mm-hmm. forward rather than human papillomavirus virus. Um, It's a very um, common virus. Mm -hmm. Uh, The CDC estimates that about 70 to 80 percent of sexually active adults will have an infection at some time in their life. Most of them won't recognize it. There won't be any clinical outcome or symptom associated with it. They'll clear and be fine. But in a handful of patients, that high-risk HPV infection persists for years. Mm -hmm. And over a 10 to 25-year period of time, that can result in precancerous changes of the cervical cells and subsequently cancer. All right. So it's a it's a virus. So right. even if you knew you had it, or even if you had symptoms, what would the symptoms be, and, and could you treat it? Low-risk HPV is in a separate category that doesn't cause cancer but causes genital warts. But the high-risk HPV really doesn't present with symptoms that patients would see or find. And after years and years of exposure, potentially that would uh, be picked up with some cervical abnormalities on the pap test or on an HPV test. It could be picked up that way as well. But there really wouldn't be symptoms that patients would be watching for. And the majority of the time, the infection clears without intervention, especially in healthy people with normal immune systems. How did you figure out that most cases of cervical cancer were were caused by a persistent HPV infection? Yeah. I actually don't know how that was figured out, but there was a German virologist who was instrumental in making this discovery a number of years ago, and then just through process of studying that virus, figuring out that it actually is responsible for a lot of oral, pharyngeal, or head and neck cancers, penile and anal cancers too, so it's not just women that need to be concerned about HPV. So what are the symptoms when someone has cervical cancer or HPV? Probably either one, both. So um, if somebody 
was not getting regular screening and came in and was diagnosed with cervical cancer symptoms, they may know it would be irregular um, menstrual or vaginal bleeding. Um, but again, most of the time, especially if it's a precancerous diagnosis, either low grade or high grade cell changes, that would not be symptomatic and that would just be picked up through the screening test. Now, uh, if you pick this up early, on a, on a pap test, then you can prevent it from spreading, prevent it from getting worse, and basically prevent cervical cancer, correct? Yep, cervical cancer is preventable through a combination of screening and vaccination. The screening itself, identifying the changes the prevention piece is following along more closely than if a pap abnormality or HPV positive test is noted, that person would be put into a surveillance program with some more frequent testing, and depending on how that progressed, potentially have a treatment to prevent the cancer. The introduction, Dr. Shives read um, a laundry list of some things, but the adequate follow-up after an abnormal test right. was surprising to me. How is that falling off of the radar? Right. Um, so. In the old days, so to speak, the recommendation was annual pap testing, and that has changed significantly in recent years, recognizing that three-year intervals with pap tests or five-year intervals with pap HPV co-tests for women 30 and over are adequate because it's such a slow-progressing process. But when people haven't come in, that's how these situations can happen. So screening only works if it's done on a repeat basis. And so people who have not engaged in regular screening, there is that potential that the infection isn't clearing and causing just, cell change. They're not coming back like they're supposed to. Right, and okay. so if they had an abnormal PAP or HPV test, they're given advice on when to be seen again. And we try to work on not letting that fall through the cracks with um, you know, uh, online reminders and our patient portal system letter reminders, but it still happens. So I heard you say, that you can prevent cervical cancer in two ways. One, catch it early before it actually turns into cancer by yep. a pap smear, but you also said the word vaccination. Yes, that is really exciting. So um, 10 years ago, the human papillomavirus or HPV vaccine became available in our country. It's been used in other countries for longer periods of time. It was initially approved for girls and women ages nine to 26 as a three-part series over six months. And the original vaccines had two low-risk HPV types and two high-risk types and covered about 70% of cervical cancers. Just a year ago, a new vaccine that has nine HPV types in it, seven high-risk, two low-risk is available. And just a couple months ago, the CDC and FDA announced that for girls and boys who are nine to 14, their immune response is so good to the vaccine that they only need two over six months rather than three. 15 to 26 year olds would still need three, but it has the potential now to lower the cancer rates by 85%. And what about boosters? Do kids have to get boosters to that or we far, still don't know? Yeah, we don't okay. know, but thus far, no. Okay. It seems awfully young. Why do you give it uh, so early? Or, right. and, yep. and if you do give this vaccine, you can prevent an infection with HPV. And if you can prevent an infection with HPV, you can prevent cervical cancer. Right. That's what's so exciting about this vaccine. It's a cancer prevention vaccine. And that's how I approach it with my um, pediatric, teenage, young adult patients. Because you're right, it's a sensitive topic to be discussing sexuality and HPV transmission with these young kids who really are the ideal candidates to get the vaccine. So a couple thoughts. One is that completing the series before any sexual exposure results in a more effective vaccine. Okay, so if you've already had sexual exposures, you've likely had HPV exposure, and so the vaccine will be less useful. And the other piece is that it has been shown that these younger kids, the 14 and younger, mount a more effective 
immune response against the mm. vaccine than people as they get older. So those are the main reasons that we really focus on the 11 to 12 year old routine while child visit is the time to introduce this. And, and that should also complete. help take away the stigma of it, that it's, you know, the sexual activity right. piece of it, that it's more about when their immunity is best. Yep. And I think that's that's working. I think there's a lot of falsehood out on the internet about risks with this vaccine, which is frankly equivalent to a Menactor meningitis vaccine or a Tdap tetanus vaccine. And I promote it and have both my teenage son and daughter have received the series and it helps me, I think, yeah. to be able to share that with parents that I trust the vaccine. I me think too. it's a good idea. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, so we're just toward the end here, but Cervical Health Awareness Month. What else do you want people to know as we make our way through sure. Cervical Health Awareness Month? This may seem unconnected, but I would encourage people to not start smoking or stop smoking. So we know that women who smoke have a higher likelihood of not clearing their HPV, and that puts them at increased mm. risk. I would encourage everybody to start screening regardless of sexual history at 21, every three year screening during the 20s, every three to five years, 30 to 65. And it can be hard to remember something that far apart. Or your Google calendar. You can there set you it go. up for years in advance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That sums it up. Dr. Great. Kathy Thanks McLaughlin, thanks so much for telling us about cervical cancer screening and everything that's available to prevent it. Thank you. For the latest in health and medical news, go to newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org.